Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Harriet Washington. She is the final guest in our special series called Women on Top, which is all made possible by our friends at Banana Republic. The most interesting businesses are born out of curiosity. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978 by two California creatives with adventurous spirits. Last fall, we partnered with a team at Banana Republic to celebrate curiosity by talking with women who are redefining what it means to be powerful and brave. And we're very excited to be back for a second series. I hope you love listening to these conversations as much as I love having them. And I know you'll be deeply inspired by these women. So please keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To see our favorites from their spring collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Harriet Washington is the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, a book that's an eye-opening account and searing indictment of the implications of racial poisoning and how where we live dramatically affects our ability to have good health. Today, we talk about the reasons IQ is a problematic construct, because it's held up as being hereditary by some scientists who are, as we will learn, deeply flawed in their thinking. IQ scores feed the stereotypes that white people and Asians are more intelligent and have more potential than people of color. This feeds a loop of misinformation as Harriet explains all of the factors, sometimes as resoundingly simple as lead exposure, that contribute to how well our minds function and how many of these factors overwhelmingly affect communities of color. Communities of color across the country are exposed to an abundance of harmful chemicals and other pathogens. These pathogens can cause infectious diseases that may cause intellectual disabilities and worse. Washington believes that until we fix these systemic issues, we are handicapping people of color and even more importantly, they're very vulnerable children. We're treating for the wrong things very often because we're not making that connection between the early poisoning and later behavior or later deficits. I'll let Harriet Washington take it from here. So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, believe me. And thank you for writing your book, which I thought was needed and fascinating and startling, though I'm sure it's none of it's startling to you. Unfortunately not, but I agree that it's been under the radar, unfortunately. So I think it's really important to draw attention to not only the physical, but also the mental consequences 
of uh, rampant environmental poisoning. Yeah. So let's talk about hereditarianism and let's talk about sort of the whole concept of IQ, because I know that that's what the book hinges on, yet it's also sort of a dumb way of assessing someone's intelligence. So do you want to take us through sort of the creation of the IQ test and then sort of how it's been perverted, but how it's also these gaps that are perceived to be hereditary are not. Right. You know the phrase, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan? Mm. It applies to IQ because you'll find several people who claim to have originated it. But it essentially began when a prominent psychologist was trying to look at children who were not performing well in school. Now that's critical because the intent of what eventually became IQ was to develop a tool for, for people who they knew had intellectual deficits. They just didn't understand what they were. So he worked on this test and ultimately, after a lot of difficulty, came up with a scale that was, you know, somewhat successful and predictive, but not terribly useful. However, one of the important things that he repeatedly said that this was a tool to be used for people who were having difficulty with cognitive tests. It wasn't a tool for the masses, mm. for everyone. And he was actually expressed fears that it might eventually be used to stratify people and label them as having lower or higher intelligence. And of course, it's exactly how it's used today. Right. So it was a flawed concept from the beginning. And what's really troubling to me about it now is that it's used in a manner, the definition of IQ is something that is simply not supported by yeah. its, uh, what it's able to gauge. So we have people, including scientists, who assume that IQ tells us something about our unchangeable intellectual capacity, something about our intellectual capacity that is um, associated with us and will never change, cannot be uh, easily lowered or lifted up, and something that is going to be predictive. Hereditarians take this illogic a step farther by without any credible scientific support claiming that differences that are measured in IQs translate to differences in cognitive abilities. So they will say that someone who has a lower IQ is necessarily someone who has a lower capacity for learning. Mm -hmm. They also say that this is something that's inherited they also claim it's something that's stratified by race. They quite, you know, without nuance, they will quite clearly say, well, nature has color-coded races of people, so we will know who's got a high cognitive ability and who's got low cognitive ability. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. It's Europeans like themselves who have the highest ability, except for when they designate Asian, some Asian groups as having high ability and people of color with the lowest. If you look at Africa, for example, a book by Richard Lynn, he claimed to assess the IQs of most countries on Earth. And every country in Africa, save two, had IQ measurements below 70. And IQ measurements below 70 denotes someone who's mentally retarded. So they're essentially saying that all of Africa is mentally retarded. And so this claim that it's something that people of color will pass on to their children, something that can be changed, is a hereditarian view that's just not supported by the facts. But one of the things I always want people to understand is one has to be wary because these are indeed scientists, and we accept their authority as scientists. But they are also united by their belief in eugenics, 
Most of these people, if not all of them, are funded directly by the Pioneer Fund, a self-proclaimed eugenic organization. They also all have very strong political agendas. We're not talking about pure science that they have formulated based on data. We're talking about people with a very strong ideology who are promoting ideas about IQ that fit neatly within that ideology. So, for example, when William Shockley in the 60s proclaimed African Americans as inherently debased intellectually with low IQs, he also had a very important bill he got brought before local senates in which he was asking that all women of color be sterilized in order to prevent, you know, dragging down the gene pool. Something that would have been quite at home in Germany under National Socialism, you know. It's a very clear, eugenic, racist idea. And so we have to look at these people as who they are, scientists but who have very strong political ideologies and who are funded by a group that funds eugenics. We had Richard uh, Richwine at Harvard, who not that long ago, I believe 2009, wrote his doctoral thesis on the inherent intellectual degradation of Hispanic Americans and went one further by saying that all Hispanic people, whether they were Americans or hailed from Spanish-speaking countries, that they all tended toward criminality and refused to assimilate. And after he earned his PhD, his first first act was to write a report for the government in which he was making a case for stemming all Hispanic immigration to the U.S. So again, what people tend to view, lay people tend to view, because they've been presented to it as a gauge of inherent intellectual ability that is promoted by scientists, yeah. is actually a politically motivated theory that is not supported well by the science at all yeah. and is sim- simply simply not accurate. IQ can tell us some things, but it can't tell you your capacity to learn for life. That's simply not what it does. It is good for some crude measurements of deficiency, but not in terms of not predictive and not something that actually can be comparative. And that's another problem we have here. You know, they are trying to compare IQs of different groups of people, but that's nonsensical. You can't compare the IQs of people who have wildly different intellectual backgrounds, experiences, and opportunities. It's really not possible. And you certainly can't compare the IQs of people who've lived entire lives with staggering assaults from environmental poisons and people who have not. Yeah. And I want to talk, obviously, that's the primarily what we're going to talk about. But I just wanted to, since you mentioned William Shockley, he's a noblest, but for the transistor effect, which exactly. has absolutely yeah, nothing. nothing to do with the intelligence of various groups of people. So I think often scientists can get completely out of their lane. They call it the Nobel curse. The you Nobel, win a Nobel curse. curse, and then you start espousing some completely crackpot theory that has nothing to do with your specialty. Yeah, it happens surprisingly often. And then you also called out Nicholas Wade, who was oh. the former Time science editor, who wrote a book called "A Troublesome Inheritance: Gene, Race, and Human History." So establishing this idea that IQ is flawed, and obviously, you know, if you live in Kenya, like the way that you learn, the whole construct of your experience is completely different than if you live in Kentucky. They're not exactly comparable. So even assuming that it's flawed, you also throughout the book talk about all the ways, as you just said, that you can affect it, proving that it's also not genetic, right? right? So I was staggered the iodine deficiency in the 20s and the 15-point leap in IQ that happened sort of throughout 
throughout the world, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, throughout the country, which meant, yeah. yeah. When you argue with a hereditarian, which is always an interesting experience, I found that if their backs are to the walls, what they will pull out very frequently is, but we have measured a difference in IQ in this country that shows a 15-point efficiency in African Americans. They have IQs that, on average, are 15 points lower than those of whites. How do you explain that? Mm. One can explain that very easily because in 1924, we closed a 15-point gap in IQ. And we did it by adding potassium iodide to salt. Now, we didn't set out to close the IQ gap. Actually, doctors were trying to get rid of goiters. Goiters were these unsightly lumps in the neck that were known to be a result of deficiency in thyroid. So they thought by giving iodide to people who had thyroid problems, it would cure the problem and the goiters would disappear, and they were right. That happened. It, by the way, it was extremely cheap. It cost like $1 or $2 per ton, you know, mm-hmm. to add iodide to salt. So 25 years later, when they're doing mass-scale IQ testing of military recruits, they discover that men from these low IQ areas of the country, like parts of Michigan, where people had 15-point lower IQ than the rest of the country, suddenly the gap had disappeared. Their IQs were like everybody else. The gap had been closed by adding iodide to salt. Because although they didn't know it, we now know that iodide iodine deficiency is the largest cause of mental retardation in the world. Mm. Unfortunately, it's still the largest cause of mental retardation in the world. Because although we know this, we haven't actually used that knowledge in other countries and haven't closed the gap. But the important thing is it should have alerted us to the fact that environmental experiences can be definitive when it comes to IQ. Yeah. Those low IQ men had low IQs because they didn't have enough iodide. And iodide is a necessary component of thyroxin, which helps direct the brain formation. Their brains weren't being formed properly because they lacked iodide. So knowing that, it makes sense to look at environmental causes when you see a difference in IQ. So take us through, so they're called Thunslein communities, and essentially the idea is that communities of color, reservations throughout this country are the preferred spot for industrial sites, toxic dumping, lead pipes, that like many things in this country, there's mass inequity in these communities, and there are consequences, as you're arguing in the book. So is it worth, should we start with lead, since that's... So well known. I think lead is most familiar to most yeah. people, right? Right, and it's you know it's pervasive. It's everywhere, unfortunately, and you know some are indeed fence line communities, but there are lots of other points of entry, of you know toxin toxicants like lead. So if we're talking about lead, it's a staggering poison. In the 1980s, when I ran a poison control center, we used to worry about children who had 20 to 25 micrograms per deciliter. And now, and so we worried about them. We had them brought to the hospital, tried to save their lives, and that was a focus on saving their lives. We didn't know enough, or perhaps in the emergency department we didn't have the luxury. We weren't necessarily worrying about how it was going to affect them later in life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't know everything, but we knew that lead had some effects. But indeed, it did affect them later in life. And now, of course, we don't worry about kids with 25. Now we worry about kids with any mm-hmm. complement of lead, because now what we, what we know now and didn't know then was any exposure can be devastating. 
So lead is also cumulative. So a kid who is exposed, even a low exposure early in life, it builds over the course of their life. It's not something that's going to stop. And um, these exposures are really devastating, even if they're low. In fact, cumulatives, looking over the whole country, there's no more damage to children from low exposures than the high exposures. Mm-hmm. More kids are suffering from low exposures. But no matter what degree of exposure, we're looking at children who are children of color. There are a lot of reasons for that. A lot of, it basically boils down to the fact that people of color in this country have not only been treated differently, they've long been segregated from other people. Mm-hmm. And if you have people who are segregated or forced to stay in certain areas, then they're the ones who are going to suffer the assaults of those areas. So certainly during enslavement and during segregation, it's very clear. You had black people who simply could not leave certain areas. So when you had lead pipes in those areas, when there was lead paint put on the walls there, when there's lead dust everywhere, at a certain point, whites could flee to the suburbs to housing that had never seen lead paint, that had no lead pipes, that didn't have exposure. But blacks were not allowed there. Segregation was officially over, de facto segregation. But we had new forms of segregation, you know, redlining for mortgages, things that kept black people out of the cleaner communities that weren't poisoned. And they're trapped there, and they're trapped there now. And it's really important to understand that although very often the discussion centers around poverty, poverty is indeed a risk factor. But race in this country is a much stronger risk factor because poor people, for example, a good illustration is that if you look at who suffers the most environmental toxicity, most poisoning, whites who have an income of $10,000 a year, profoundly poor, people say in Appalachia, they have an exposure to toxicity. But African-Americans who earn fifty dollars to $60,000 have a greater exposure, a much greater exposure. So although poverty is a risk factor, race is a much stronger one. And when you have people who are trapped in these areas, it's very damaging because if you look at lead poisoning as a whole, the truth is that lead poisoning in children in this country has improved. There's less lead poisoning. More kids are not completely free of it but don't have the levels of lead poisoning that cause us to have serious worries about their future cognitive effects. But if you look at African-American children, you see the opposite. You see spikes. You see very high exposures. And so race is a really malignant factor in this country because it stands for so many other things. It stands for physical segregation. It stands for a limitation on one's social aspirations, no matter how much money one has. One can't buy a home in the the suburbs when the suburbs have ways of borrowing you from housing. I remember when we came back from Germany to the U.S. in the early 60s, my father's, you know, first move was he wanted to buy a house. He tried for three years to buy a house in the suburbs. Couldn't do it. And I actually saw some of the mortgage applications were interesting. At the top of many of them, they actually had the percentage of white in that community. Wow. Yes. It was a selling point, you see, for people. And it was always in the high 90s, if not not 100%. It was always like 97, 99, 100%. Just a selling point. And so there were also clauses in some of the leases saying you had to promise that you wouldn't sublet to African-Americans. You had to promise that you would not have African-Americans in the house that you owned for a prolonged period of time. So the very strong sentiment 
against allowing people of color in the in the cleaner communities without toxicity. That's a nice way of Just putting it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Stronger sentiment. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's so messed up. And I know kids, I thought this was really helpful because where you're talking about sort of the critical windows of vulnerability for both prenatal development and also for children, just how, why it's, why something like lead, which isn't great for adults, obviously, but doesn't have the same effects. Can you sort of just quickly walk us through why kids in particular are so vulnerable? Oh, sure. That's a very, very important point. And it doesn't only pertain to lead. It pertains to most toxicants. So what happens is that children are exquisitely vulnerable because, for one thing, they have a greater surface skin area compared to their size. So if we're talking about something that can enter through the skin, as lead does, not only can you breathe it in, but it'll, the lead dust on your skin can actually cause problems and most other toxicants. So when you have a larger sur- surface area, you're going to have more you know, compared to your body area. Same is true for lungs. Their lungs are larger you know, relative to their body area. So they're going to breathe in more and be affected by more relative to their body area. So their body load is going to be much, much larger than an adult in the same environment. There's also their metabolism, especially perinatal, like children who have been just born. For the first year or so of life, a child spends about 87% of his metabolic energy building a brain. You know, we see kids sleeping all the time, but they're actually not just resting, they're hard at work building that brain. It's a very complex energy, expensive task, and it can't do that and ward off the effects of toxicity at the same time. It can't do that and ward off pathogen infection at the same time. So kids who are exposed to lead, exposed to phthalates, or who might even be sick, you know, get an infection, they are not going to be able to build a brain properly. And improper brain building is devastating. There's a phrase, the dose makes the poison, Mm -hmm. which is true. It's also true that the timing makes the poison. So when a child is building a structure in the brain, it happens at a particular time. If if the child is actually having to deal with influx of lead or pathogens or phthalates at the same time and it can't do both, that structure may not be made. Those neurons may not migrate on time. So you end up with a brain that is improperly formed. And this can be extremely devastating. And what's really insidious about it is it's not always immediately apparent. You know, a lot of the harms done to children are not apparent for a very long time. So if a child is at one year old, is not able to build a proper amygdala or limbic system, we start seeing profound behavior problems when they're 13 and 14. Right. No one tends to connect the two things. So very often they don't say, oh, that child was lead poisoned in utero or at two years old, and that's why they're behaving. No, we'll say that child has conduct disorder. That child has a psychosis. We're treating for the wrong things very often because we're not making that connection between the early poisoning and later behavior or later deficits. Children are not making their developmental milestones, you know, because of something that happened to them 
before they were a year old, and it's not always being picked up on. In fact, I'd venture to say, having talked to a lot of you know pediatric neurologists, it's typically not being picked up on. And when I say these things happen at certain times, I mean it's very precise. So you know, the organs begin forming from days 21 to 56. The neural plate forms around day 18. So if they are assaulted by lead on one of those days, it can be terrible. The yeah. brain can be completely distorted. If it happens the next week or the week before, the child could be perfectly okay. Yeah. But this vulnerability is really important, and unfortunately, it tends not to be part of the calculation. Because I have, and I'm sure you've seen it too, we often hear scientists, especially industry scientists, but not o- only them, say things like, well, true, there's an exposure here, but it's so low, it's too low to do any damage. Mm. It's equivalent of a drop of water in mm-hmm. 18 bathtub full. That can't harm anyone. Oh, yes, it can. It can harm a child in utero. It can harm a young a one-year-old. So we need to start being more vigilant and paying attention to these early exposures. They don't have to be large. They can be infinitesimal, but they can still completely devastate a child's brain. Yeah, I mean, it just goes again, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, to the whole causation correlation argument and with tens or hundreds of thousands of unregulated chemicals in our system, in our water, lead, et cetera. Like we'll never be able to say, although with lead, it's probably quite clear this caused this, therefore no one's taking responsibility for cleaning up the mess. And in terms of long-term impacts, I was staggered, fact check me, but is it that black men have a hundred percent higher risk of Alzheimer's disease? Let me um, look. 100% seems high. I think in some limited populations, it can be that high. Twi- that's basically twice as much. Yeah. And yeah, that's not unusual. Yeah, that's true. Okay. That's true. I need to issue the caveat. It's not true for every single population of African Americans, but it is true. They yeah. have double the risk. So it's a very serious, serious risk. It's staggering. And if you look at Alzheimer's, I mean, Alzheimer's, the interesting thing is that this cognitive decline in adulthood, in late adulthood. Alzheimer's is sometimes a diagnosis of exclusion. And we have to think about the fact that we're talking about people who, first of all, have very often have a genetic uh, vulnerability. You know, we often hear the argument posed as genetics versus environment, but that's not, that's a false dichotomy because the two are intertwined. Yeah. Some environmental insults are more harmful or maybe only harm people who have a genetic vulnerability. And some environmental insults cause genetic problems, can cause distortion in the genetic makeup. For example, diethylsilvestraw, DES, probably the best known endocrine disruptor, it can cause genetic changes in the people who are affected, causing them to have children who are now very vulnerable or have these defects because of, so it's very closely intertwined. It's not an e, you know either or thing, mm-hmm. but yes, the vulnerability is real, and it's much worse than we're told. And it's important to understand that this, when you're talking about cause versus correlation, I think there's a very basic oversimplification that happens here. People are left with the impression that well, if you can show that it's a correlation and not a cause then you don't really have a, you haven't shown that there's a problem. Right. That's absolutely not true. The strength of the correlation is important. When you have many studies pointing to the same culprit as causing a problem, 
That's important, too. Mm-hmm. One of the difficulties in, pr- in proof is that we're using very often outmoded ways of proof. And we also are listening to arguments about proof from people who have a financial stake in the outcome. So when you have industry scientists saying that, well, you're saying that these phthalates are causing problems in the children, but our studies don't prove with 100% certainly it's true. Mm-hmm. Are they saying anything meaningful? Mm-hmm. Do we need 100% certainty? Should that be the gold standard? Right. And also, proof is not just a scientific stance. It's also an economic stance. Because if a company can prove, if a company can cast doubt on proof, they can evade responsibility. Yeah. They can, they can you know, not have to pay for it or clean up. So the more doubt that they can, they can spell, you know, more doubt they can sprinkle around, around a seemingly clear correlation, the better off they are. That's economically useful for them. In fact, a really interesting book entitled Doubt is Their Product. Oh, yeah. Spell that out, right, you know. I just interviewed um, David Michaels last week in D.C. Yes. And then his new book, Triumph of Doubt, all about, he calls it product defense science. He doesn't really, he's like, (laughs) kind of, it's not really science. It's a recut of existing data to prove whatever they need to prove to... Exactly. Yeah, to create enough confusion that people think that their product is actually fine. Exactly. Uh, And clearly, communities of color are the ones who pay the biggest price. We'll get back to Harriet Washington in just a second. You've probably heard me mention that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who were looking for an adventure. Fun fact. Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company, and today the inspiration for their clothing is designed for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. This can be seen in Banana Republic's latest spring collection, a modern, versatile take on workwear. To see our favorites from the collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Back to my chat with Harriet Washington. So, all right, in terms of correlation, you you brought this up earlier in terms of behavioral problems. So besides loss in IQ, there's now, it seems, mounting evidence or maybe a, an abundance of evidence that it causes ADHD, criminality, like that there are impulsivity, that some of these things that might be showing up as social ills are actually just manifestations of this massive health problem. Right. You know, these are symptoms you're talking of. And what happens, as I I alluded to earlier, people will see the symptoms in young people. And using their perception, they will, you know, hazard or make a diagnosis. But what is that diagnosis? You know, I think what's changing is that seeing the symptoms, they're expanding, you know, the, the differential tree of that diagnosis to understand that it could be a psychiatric disorder that you're describing, or it could be the result of um, this early poisoning experience. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening here. We're seeing, thankfully, an expansion of the the medical gaze. So you're not just simply trying to figure out which diagnosis 
label applies these children, but what actually caused it. I think probably the most, for me, the most surprising aspect of that was looking at alcohol disorders. Mm. You know, I think where um, we do read and hear a great deal about alcohol disorders in children of alcoholics, alcoholic women, and also in Native American populations. It's been characterized really well. And when in prenatal screening, physicians know with these groups of women, alcoholics and, and Native Americans, they know to screen them, you know, mm. for alcohol abuse and try to protect the unborn child by making sure they're not exposed to that. But unfortunately, they don't do that with wider populations. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of amass by a doctor named uh, Carl Bell, a, a pediatric psychologist in Chicago, who unfortunately passed away last year. He looked at large populations of children who interacted with the justice system because when they came, you know, juveniles, they had diagnoses, you know, behavioral diagnoses. And he looked at their histories and found that most of them had mothers who drank socially while pregnant. Mm. So what's interesting is that the perception that alcoholic women are have children who are vulnerable is, of course, correct. But so do young women who don't know they're pregnant until maybe t- two months out mm-hmm. and who've been drinking socially. You don't have to be an alcoholic for your kid to be at risk. If you're a social drinker, your child's been injured by the alcohol you take in just as easily as an alcoholic's child. And that is indeed what's been happening, but it's been under the radar. Yeah, no, it's so interesting, too. Like you cite, you say, in 2007, Amherst economics professor Jessica Wolpaul Reyes released her analysis showing that the reduction in gasoline lead was responsible for most of the decline in U.S. violent crime during the 1990s. Right. Now, that's interesting because looking at crime, that's something a bit different. And very recently, very recently, Paul's research and that of Kevin Drum, who found some of the same things, has been called into question. People are questioning this. Now, we don't know who's right. Science, frankly, doesn't work that way. You know, it'll be a while until we can sort it all out. But I think when we look at the people who are questioning their data, the big big question I have is, what are they doing? Are they looking at it and finding there isn't a correlation after all? Or are they looking at it and deciding the correlation does not rise to the level of proof? Right. If it's the latter, I find that a lot less concerning for the reasons I suggested early on. It doesn't have to rise to the level of proof, you know? Yeah. Um, We're not talking about an either or. It could be a factor. Yeah. And also, it's like kind of such a silly debate, right? It's like take the lead out of paint, like take the lead out of, I mean, it's, I know gasoline's unleaded now, but like, let's redo all of our infrastructure as a country and get rid of lead pipes, create some jobs. So these are also in some ways silly debates. I think so, because they make more sense if you're trying to defend lead than if you're generally concerned about the health of children. Because let's say, worst case scenario, you know, for Walpaw and Drum, Let's say it turns out that they're wrong, and lead is actually not a driving factor in the murder rate. Okay, lead is a driving factor in cognitive damage, you know, in physical health, in a wide spectrum of other disorders. There's no question about whether we want to remove lead or not. Yeah. You know, but for the lead industry, it might help them to evade responsibility. And that's also that I also am interested in the fact that, although I think it's important I don't deny that, but I find it interesting that a lot of um, their work has been invested in looking at crime, Mm. 
because we have to be really careful about blaming the victim here. Mm-hmm. You know, lead, I think lead probably is associated with crime because of the effect it has on behavior. Also the effect it has on curtailing people's lives. If you can't get a job, if you can't hold a job, if you can't get an education, you may likely be, be more likely to turn to crime. But I, I'm more concerned about the effect on people's lives, on the, you know, I'd love to see this intensity of research not on crime, but on on people's mental health mm-hmm. when they reach adulthood, on diagnosis that we make, on basically curtailing the damage. Those are things that I'm really more interested in than looking at crime rates. Yeah. So clearly, you know, beyond environmental pollution, which seems to be the the primary threat that you outline, I also thought it was really interesting when you go into infectious diseases yes, and all of these things that are happening primarily in the South, right. primarily as the climate warms, that we, of course, assumed were not here and how they're impacting, you know, vulnerable populations and their intelligence as well. So can you take us through hookworm, chaga, like what people are, you know, the staggering things people are finding? Yes, you know, I had written a story for the American Scholar in which I talk about the fact that these neglected tropical diseases that everybody knows are causing not only physical harms, but cognitive harms in the global south. You know, if you go to Brazil, if you go to Thailand, if you go to Nigeria, you're going to find these infections that have been documented to lower people's intelligence and to increase the rate of uh, mental disorders. So we know that. But there's been a, a very strong animus against admitting that those diseases are also here. They're here not because our climate is getting warmer, but because the U.S. has always had pockets where we have a very warm climate. We're very unusual for um, a developed country. Most industrial com- countries are not as warm as our country is, but parts of our country are subtropical. The same disorders that flourish in the global south are flourishing in Texas. Texas is the epicenter for diseases like Chagas, toxocariasis, toxoplasma, uh, toxoplasma gondii, cystocariasis. I mean, all these diseases that are devastating the global south are devastating um, the southern part of our country, and many of them have devastating effects on the brain. Probably the most, you know, it's like a horror movie. The most frightening horror show example of that is the fact that trichinosis, which we're familiar with as infecting pork, Mm -hmm. and then infecting people's intestinal tracts, can also infect your brain. Mm -hmm. You know, in the global south, it often infects the brain. You have actually have larvae in people's brains, and it causes epilepsy, mental retardation, very often death. And it has become a, a very major cause of epilepsy in this country. But for a long time, doctors, you know, had a difficult time seeing that it was the same disorder. So we have all these diseases causing dramatic cognitive problems, mental health problems, brain problems in the, in the southern parts of this country. And they also are causing a lowering of IQ, a lowering of intelligence, so that you can actually track infection and IQ and see that they're on a parallel track. As you lower infections, IQs rise and vice versa. I should go back to a minute to IQ because we've we've already talked about the fact that IQ is not a reliable, mm-hmm. you know, of um, people's cognitive potential. 
but it is a reliable gauge of people's cognitive achievement. That's why it's still useful mm-hmm. for measuring the damage caused by toxicants and pathogens. So it can show you where there has been damage to the brain that results in lower IQ. It can't tell you what your potential is, what you're actually going to do with your life, what you're capable of doing. And a really good example of that is um, in Nigeria. There's an area in Nigeria where they happen for different reasons to test the IQs uh, 14 years apart. Now, 14 years is not enough time for anybody's genetics to change. Hereditarians have to admit that a a big change in IQ in 14 years can't be laid to genetics. And that's what they found in Kenya. The IQs leapt 18 points on average within 14 years. And what happened in Kenya? In that part of Kenya, there was a public health initiatives that were very successful. They eradicated a lot of infectious disease. Mm. And as a result, you saw people's IQ, measured IQs go up. It's the kind of thing that happens when you actually attack the source, you know, brain damage. Yeah. I mean, you cite that in Alabama's Loundis County, which I, I just butchered that, I'm sure 67% they believe are infected by hookworm. The National School of Tropical Medicine estimates that 12 million people are infected. And then you think, you say the big five now affect at least 14 million U.S. residents. Yes, yes, it's a lot of people. And a lot of those people are living in poverty. Not only poverty, that's the interesting right. thing. It, not only poverty, what's, what's the real denominator here is lack of basic services. So, you know, we are used to having our garbage collected regularly. We're used to having housing that doesn't have cracks in it that open the elements into it. We're used not to living in areas where there are lots of old tires sitting around collecting water for mosquitoes to breed. That's what happens in the global south mm-hmm. where these disease vectors like mosquitoes breed, where garbage is sitting around uncollected, where these kind of things breed pathogen infections, right? That's exactly what happens, too, in these poor areas of Texas or Alabama. You have people living in areas where they're not getting basic services. The garbage isn't collected. You know, their housing is rotting. So all these things you would think associate with poverty, and often they are. They're also associated with being politically powerless. In Houston, interestingly enough, unlike most cities, they don't have zoning. So that means that there aren't areas of the city that are protected from certain uses. So you can much more easily have refinery plop down next to your house. Mm. You know, you wouldn't be allowed to do that in many states. So very often you're talking about middle-class suburban communities who, for whatever reason, you have services being withheld from them. Kind of thing that you saw in with Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. You know, after when there was rebuilding, rebuilding wasn't, you know, equal. It was right. done better in some places, but a lot better than others. Other, some places were never rebuilt. Places that weren't rebuilt, you know, had a lot of breeding ground for insects, things like that. So it's not always income. That, but there are a lot of things that we associate with being poor that actually you can associate with being African-American or Hispanic in an area where you're not getting the services that your taxes are paying for. Yeah. Mm. So besides voting... What can people do, both to protect their families and also to try to rail against these injustices or start to help to to make something happen here? That's a $64,000 question. (laughs) I mean, 
I had two chapters in the book that talk about exactly what people can do. But I have to preface by saying it's not really something that can be solved by individuals. Yeah, not it's a personal responsibility right. issue. Exactly, exactly. Our government should be taking leadership here, and it is not. It's doing quite the opposite. The EPA under Trump has rolled back all the advances that were made since the Nixon administration. We'd been doing, uh, you know, we'd been making forward progress. Not enough progress, I would say, but we were going in the right direction. We're no longer going in the right direction. We're now going backwards. So the first thing that we need is a stronger EPA, but individuals can't change that. What individuals can do is change their environment to minimize the harms. And I talk in Chapter 6 a great detail about that. But if I had to give just a few points, I would say that if your air quality is a problem, and it often is for African Americans and Hispanics, then run your air conditioner as much as you can afford to do Mm -hmm. and and keep your windows and doors shut. It's expensive. Sometimes there's a there are there's funding available for that, but not always. Also, in your homes, do your best to rid your homes of dust and vermin. Many vermin carry the pathogens that cause mental disorders, things like cockroaches, dust mites, and you're limited in what you can do there too, because if you are renting a home, you're it's up to the landlord, but Landlords are also governed by municipal laws that say they have to maintain a vermin-free environment. Use that as leverage and get together with your, you know, other people in your building if you have to. Vacuum frequently with help of vacuums. So these are things you can do. Also, control the type of food that you eat that comes into your home. A lot of food in this country is tainted. In fact, I point out in this book that For most Americans, I don't mean Americans of color, for most Americans, children's largest source of of lead is what? Baby food. Mm -hmm. Every year, consumer reports are reports showing that baby food has has lead and has pesticides in it. So I talk about preparing your own food, finding safe sources of food, finding safe containers, canning, those kind of things. These are all things you can do that will minimize the effects. And then you also need to try to do attack the things that individuals can attack. And to do that, you should organize your community. And I point out that you shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. Other groups have done this. And there are also resources for you, really good ones. Like there are lawyers of earth justice mm-hmm. who are dedicated to helping communities um, get rid of the toxic conditions in their area and deal with the laws forcing the government to do the right thing. So I I pointed out in the book how to reach out to them, how to organize with other communities in your area, and their strength in numbers. I really liken it to the civil rights movement, because quite frankly, I'm old enough to remember it, and what I find really interesting is that when you read about it now, it it sounds like it was something that all Americans were behind, that everyone had the support of all Americans and everyone sang kumbaya, that is not what it was like. You know, people who were civil rights agitators were often decried as criminals. People were invoking law and order. I mean, everyday people. Many people took a very dim view of the civil rights movement until they won. And I think we're in the same situation now. There's no arguing that things look bleak. Mm-hmm. With the Trump EPA being dismantled by the day, very scary to think about, with the almost universal assaults on communities of color. It's very intimidating 
But that doesn't mean that people can't win. And one of the important things people have, ways people have won, is that they have had allies. Mm -hmm. In the civil rights movement, it wasn't just African Americans who were fighting for their rights. There were whites also joining with them. And I think that's really important because it's important, you know, strength in numbers. And we're seeing things like the Sierra Club is now taking on some of these problems as they're part of their own mission. That's a really, really important step, I think. And so I'm optimistic, even in the face of all these challenges. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I agree. Like, we need to be allies. For everyone who thinks that they would have been an abolitionist, like, now is the time. Yeah, because we're still cleaning it up. It's still perpetuating systemically. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Harriet Washington. Make sure to check out a copy of her book, A Terrible Thing to Waste. I highly recommend it. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.